Welcome to the Procedures Podcast. I'm Mike Noonan, and we're very lucky today to have with us Chris Groombridge, who is an emergency physician and pre-hospital physician, and we're going to talk about the procedure surgical airway. So thanks for being on the, on the show. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. The surgical airway, this is a much talked about topic and something that we've encountered in our hospital in the past. Just let us know a little bit about your background, Chris. Yeah, Mike, so I'm uh, an emergency physician primarily. I, I work here at the Alfred. Um, I've just recently finished working in London, so I, I worked as a pre-hospital physician for a year with London Hems, and then prior to that, a couple of years working uh, in Sydney with Sydney Hems. Excellent. Obviously, with your previous experience, it's been something that you've trained for and, uh, and gone through in that process. Just talk us through where you see this procedure fitting into the real-world application in terms of the, the pre-hospitalist, uh, but also in the, the hospital setting. I think there are two times when you're going to perform this procedure. The first will be as a rescue technique. This will be in the can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario where you've attempted to secure the airway by more traditional means. Intubation has failed, a superdrug airway device is not effective, you're not able to ventilate the patient and then this is the rescue technique where you cut into the airway to secure an airway. And then the other indication will be the primary surgical airway and this is going to be in times when there is facial trauma or particularly neck and facial burns where gaining access to the airway isn't possible uh, and the neck becomes the only option. What do you see is the best way to actually plan and train for this? This is a procedure that many of us will never get to perform in our careers. but I think all of us need to, to be able to perform it when needed. I uh, personally visualise doing the technique, imagine the anatomy and the incisions that I'll make. And I think visualisation can be a really powerful way to maintain skills. There are also courses available, particularly cadaveric courses, where you can palpate the anatomy and make the incisions that are required. I think that's a really effective way to learn and stay current with this technique. But I don't think it has to be as high fidelity as that. Certainly I've used very low fidelity trainers. In Sydney we used to use uh, ventilator tubing as a as a airway and, and cut into that. And we actually did it blindfolded, kind of highlighting the, the fact that this is often a blind technique due to the bleeding from the neck. And incorporating it into difficult airway scenarios is a really effective way to imprint this in your skill set. In London, we used to have a, a two-person technique, and so you and the paramedic drilled on the various roles that you had in, in performing the technique, and that was a really good way to, to get more comfortable with performing the procedure as part of a scenario. And it's often said that with these sort of procedures that one of the barriers may be actually the indication for doing that. In your experience, particularly in the pre-hospital setting, what have you seen in cases that you've come across as, as barriers where this procedure may or may not have been performed appropriately? Yeah, I, uh, I think it's important to just be really aware of the indications and to visualise for yourself when you would perform the procedure. Where I've worked in the last year, I know that we, there were two cases and the clinicians involved didn't have any uh, hesitation moving on to the surgical airway. They had had standard attempts at airway management that weren't successful related to the trauma to the airway uh, and they both proceeded straight on to a surgical airway which was successful. I think this is a situation where... Uh, if we drill and practice often enough, then we, we shouldn't have a hesitation uh, to moving on to the surgical airway. And this current generation of critical care clinicians would be very prepared to move on to this important step in airway management. I think we've learned a lot from past cases, such as the Elaine Bromley case. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And with training, um, you get comfort with these procedures, as you say, and it's actually moving on. The cognitive barrier is just not, uh, not the same as it would be if you hadn't actually practiced it. So I think that's a really good point. In terms of preparation for this procedure, obviously you've probably got some standard operating procedures in your mind from your previous training. For the non-expert, what you had a couple of minutes to prepare, what equipment would you want to assemble as a, as a minimum requirement? Yeah, I, I think I would have a, a scalpel, usually a 
22 or 23 blade, the bougie, so a standard size 15 intubating bougie, and then a small endotracheal tube, a size 6 or a 6.5. And, uh, and then in some systems, I know that having a trousseau or tracheal dilator or even artery forceps to maintain the tract is quite useful. So I think it's a reasonable time just to bring up the question around the use of cell dinger technique versus the open technique. Um, what are your thoughts on, on those techniques, Chris? There's lots of kit available and critical care clinicians are familiar with cell dinger techniques. But for this particular technique, I'd be much more comfortable with a scalpel. It probably doesn't matter, but I think you do need to drill, practice and visualise the technique and be ready to perform when required. There have been studies that have compared the two techniques and well, the surgical airway technique does tend to win for first-pass success. The NAP4 audit project actually did look at, at this question and they found a, a much higher failure rate with the cannula-based technique. And current consensus, I think, is that the surgical technique is, is more successful. There was a, a pre-hospital paper published in 2010 and I think that, that was showing a, a 90% success rate for the surgical and only a 60 or 65% success rate for the needle technique. And a link to that reference will be on the website. Okay, great. That's really why we've chosen that as the technique we're going to teach in our course. Thinking about the technique itself, how would you actually describe the technique that you would perform? And, and bear in mind that there's probably a couple of different ways. You're right, there are a few variations. And I'll actually, I'll, I'll run through all of them if that's okay. I'll, I'll talk about the one that I imagine doing, so the one that I visualise. So if you imagine a situation where you, you're in a can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario at the head end, I imagine stepping to the right-hand side of the patient, and I'm right-handed. And so with my non-dominant left hand, I'm going to hold the larynx and I put the skin under tension overlying the larynx, stabilizing the thyroid cartilage between my thumb and middle finger, and then I use my index finger in my left hand to identify the cricothyroid membrane. I then, with a scalpel, make a, a horizontal stab incision directly through skin and cricothyroid membrane into the airway. At this point, I think it's important to note that it's very likely to bleed here, and you shouldn't anticipate being able to visualize the structures involved. You should put your finger into the, the wound, and the rest of the technique is essentially blind. So put the scalpel down, take the bougie, and place the bougie onto the pad of your left index finger, and then feed it into the airway. With the bougie in the airway, you can then railroad a, the small size 6 intracheal tube over the bougie, and then into the airway. You don't have to go in very far, just get the balloon just inside the incision, really, and then the bougie can be removed, uh, the cuff inflated, uh, and then confirm that you're in the airway with standard techniques, so end tidal CO2 detection, uh, auscultation. And then at that point, I would hold on to the intratracheal tube and not let go and start preparing to secure it to the neck, usually probably with tape, and then delegate someone to hold the tube at, at all times, particularly when moving the patient. Now, the two other techniques that I'll mention are very similar, but slight variations. So in London, as I mentioned, it was a two-person technique, and we drilled a situation where the the doctor would move around to the patient's left because the paramedic would have a kit set up to the right-hand side of the patient. So they would stay on the right and they would have a trousseau tracheal dilator ready. And so you would stabilise the larynx from below by holding the cricoid cartilage and again identifying the cricothyroid membrane with the index finger, incising the neck with the scalpel. But with the scalpel in the incision, the paramedic would immediately insert the trousseau dilator either side of the scalpel blade before removing the scalpel so that the tract was essentially maintained at all times. The scalpel was then removed uh, and with the dilator in place, the bougie can be passed into the airway. Once the bougie was in, the technique would be completed as before, but that was felt to be quite a reliable way of maintaining the tract into the airway. And the last technique would be a scalpel bougie technique where the scalpel is inserted into the incision and then rotated slightly to 45 degrees or so just to allow space for the bougie to be inserted alongside the scalpel blade into the airway and then again once the bougie is in the airway completing the technique as before. 
Up till now, we've been talking about a horizontal incision through the skin and cricothyroid membrane into the airway. I think it's important to mention that a lot of practitioners advocate for a longitudinal incision. And I think necks where the anatomy is easy to identify, then a horizontal incision is, is appropriate and can be made confidently. But in necks where there is a lot of more soft tissue in the obese neck, for example, it's appropriate to perform a vertical incision in the midline with a view to then palpating the anatomy through the incision. So as you say, there are a number of techniques. And interesting, you mentioned the vertical and horizontal incisions. You mentioned that in a, a neck that's a little bit larger or there's a lot of subcutaneous tissue that's expected, you'll do the vertical incision first. And if there's a thin neck, you'll just do a horizontal incision. Given that this is a rare procedure and certainly uh, many of us will probably never perform this in our career, there's obviously going to be some concern around causing harm to the patient as well. Is there much concern with regard to damaging the, the airway when you're doing this procedure? I don't actually tend to worry too much about the risk of harm in the setting because the time when you're going to perform this procedure, you're, you're preventing hypoxia and death essentially. And the, the structures are, are pretty robust. In terms of complications, I think bleeding, as we've mentioned, is, is a big issue. But if you think of it as a blind procedure and, and know that you're going to, to use tactile feedback to access the airway, that's probably the way to think about it. And you can manage the bleeding once the airway is secure with sutures and pressure. But the other big complication is failure to access the airway, misplaced incisions, and the big concern, which would be false passage of your endoscopic tube into the soft tissues, at which point you've distorted the anatomy and haven't retrieved the situation by not ventilating the lungs. So I think that's the, the complication that I worry about. And so focusing on a technique that uh, ensures you are within the airway is, is probably the most important thing. In the longer term, there are complications described. Uh, subglottic stenosis was, was always a big worry of, of these surgical airways. But I think that's less of a concern now. We don't, I don't think there is a lot of subglottic stenosis associated with cricothyroidotomy. There are lesser um, outcomes such as subjective dyspnea and, and change of voice. But certainly we're doing this procedure to prevent hypoxic brain injury and death. And so I, I tend not to worry about those risks of harm. So we've covered a lot there, Chris, and we've covered most of the pointers and pitfalls. Is there anything that we, that we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring in? I think it's important to reiterate this is a blind procedure. There is very likely to be bleeding, uh, and so get comfortable with palpating the anatomy and identifying the landmarks. I think it's a good idea to practice on necks that you have no intention of ending up cutting. So every RSI, have a feel of the anterior neck and run through the procedure mentally. You know, where are you going to stand? How are you going to stabilise the larynx? Where will you make your cut? And so if you ever need to, you've kind of mentally rehearsed beforehand and you're one step closer to being ready to perform a surgical airway. In terms of the procedure, I think stabilising the larynx, so hold the, the thyroid cartilage steady and maintain tension in the skin, overlying the cricothyroid membrane with your non-dominant hand. And then in terms of the muscle relaxant, I, I tend to use rocuronium, and I think this is the ideal choice for RSI. Certainly if I ever need to perform a, a cricothyroidotomy, I don't want the patient to start coughing or moving at all while I'm performing the procedure. And so I think that's the ideal muscle relaxant in this situation. Well, thank you very much for your time, Chris, and we'll uh, see you at the course. Thank you. Thanks for having me.